The Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims had no idea there was going to be a battle. In the ayah of the Quran was revealed to the Prophet and to the Sahabi that you have the right now to attack the caravans and take what is your right because the Mahajirun's rights were stripped. But this was not an obligation on the Ansar, the Ansari Muslims. So the local residents of Medina, it was not an obligation upon them. It was more of the rights of the Mahajirun because they had been wronged. So Allah says, you have been wronged and they took everything from you. Now Allah gives you the permission. So this was the first state of jihad that you can now basically take what is your right. So when Muhammad sent one of the Sahabi out and scouted, they saw Abu Sufyan's caravan coming back, and that caravan was huge. When he got the information back from the scout that Abu Sufyan's caravan's coming back, then Muhammad ordered immediately the Sahabi that were there and said, we're going to take the caravan. Whoever is ready, let's go. Medina's a big place. So when the Sahabi said, oh, let's prepare and call the other people, and said, we haven't got time for that. Take what you can, whatever camels and whatever horses you got, we don't have to gear up, we don't need any equipment, we're just going to raid a caravan, they don't have an army. So when Muhammad left and made his way to try and trap this caravan, Abu Sufyan himself was a very smart individual, figured out that actually they're coming for uh, the caravan. So he sent a message out to the Quraysh to mobilize an army to come out to protect your caravan, because if this caravan got looted, it was carrying 80% of the assets of the Quraysh, of Makkah. So if they lost that, that state would have been bankrupt. Abu Sufyan managed to evade them. So the Prophet Muhammad and the Sahabi came towards Badr to catch him towards the coast. Abu Sufyan quickly ran to the coast with the caravan and evaded them. So when they got there, Abu Sufyan sent a message back to Abu Jahl and said, we're done, you can go back home. He responded back and said, no, I'm going to now stop him. I've had enough of this. We've had 13 years of him causing havoc and problems. I'm going to make an example of him and let the rest of the Arab nations know that you cannot mess with the Quraysh. So we're going to go and we're going to deal with this and we're going to finish this once and for all. We're never going to get that chance. And Abu Sufyan was a bit more cool, calm, collected. He said, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. But he didn't listen. So they mobilized a thousand warriors with a hundred camels, horses. They were armed to receive. They went for war. The Muslims had no idea they were coming. No idea. So by the time the Muslims arrived at Badr and the caravan had gone, then the verse of the Quran was revealed. Jibreel came to Muhammad and said to him, there is an army being sent to you. Now, it is an obligation for you to fight and the Mahajirun to fight, but not the Ansar. So then the Prophet asked them, do you want to fight or do you not want to fight? Obviously the Mahajirun, they had so much anger and revenge built into them, the way they were treated. They're like, we've lost everything anyway. We're ready to fight. We'll go. Each of the Sahabi got up and said, yeah, we'll fight. But Muhammad stayed quiet. And then Saad bin Muad realized, actually, and he's the Ansar, he said, you're not really asking them. You're asking us, aren't you? Because the beef isn't with us. And he said, we will go to the highest mountains in Yemen, which is the most dangerous. And if we have to die there, we will die. We're with you all the way. So that was a commitment. And Badr has a very, very powerful lesson. Inshallah, we're going to go through those lessons. But the main thing was, what they didn't realize is that kind of commitment to put towards Allah. 
Any situation that Allah Ta'ala wants you to do something where you may go out of your boundaries, out of your comfort zone to do something. What they didn't realize is that after this battle, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala certified them past, present and future, all sins are forgiven. You're going straight to paradise. It doesn't matter what you do from here at this point. Even if they committed sin, they're not going to be counted for it. It's done. And they didn't realize that that was the trade-off. So Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala wanted to see this commitment out of them. Don't get me wrong, there were Sahabi who were shaking. Look, this is the most important thing that people need to understand. Sahabi are not supermen. They are supermen from our perspective, the way we look at them and some of the things that they do. But they're just humans. Some of them, they feared the fact that we are outnumbered. We don't want to do this. We didn't say goodbye to our families. We're not ready. And so Allah said that fear got into their hearts. And then later on, that fear stayed with them, even as they were preparing for the battle, until Allah sent the rain and the sakina that calmed them down. So in any situation, if you have the intention for doing for the sake of Allah, and you know that, look, it's going to financially squeeze me out. It's going to cause problems with my family. It's going to do this, it's going to do that. If you're purely doing it for the sake of Allah, Allah will bring ease to the situation. The concept of qadr means that Allah is always in control of the results, but the results will never be enabled until you initiate the action. So in this battle, you will realize that Allah did send the angels to help, but he said to back them up. And why did they use this term? In Arabic, the term that was used defines that you actually had to do something before I sent them. When they come and join you, you're going to win. But I needed to see, are you going to be able to do it? But once you make that trip, once you make that journey, once you go over that point, then Allah says, I want to make it easier for you. So this is what you need to understand, right? And it starts with the most basic things. You know, like when you have to give charity. You know, the guys that come around the bucket, the mosque, and the imam's giving a beautiful khutbah, you get so emotionally tied up, and you're like, oh, I'm going to put £100 down. And as the bucket gets nearer and nearer, you go from 100 to 90, from 90 to 50, because you're working out, oh, I need to go shopping, I'm going to go to Lidl, got to get this, got kids' tuition to do. And by the time it comes to you, it's like a couple of quid you throw in. If you just took the faith, the leap, Allah SWT would have made it easy, Allah would have returned this. But we still haven't got that commitment, we haven't got that tawakkal yet. So the issue of Badr was about this tawakkal. When you go through this, you need to understand emotions they were going through. They were normal men who embrace Islam, they would pray five times a day, they would fast. They've never done this before. It's different when I'm ordering you to do something. It's a different scenario when I give you the option to turn back. Then you have to think realistically. So once I've been ordered, I don't have a choice. But if I have an option, where do I go with? So a lot of these things start to come back. And there was even a statement that was made about, is it true that if we go into war, that Allah SWT will give us something? He says, there are eight gardens of paradise. And you will enter the highest level. You will enter the highest level. And such was the reaction that some of the Sahabi, one Sahabi was eating dates. And when he heard this, he goes to the Prophet, is that true what you just said? He said, yes. He goes, if I finish these dates, it would have been too much of a long day before I enter paradise. So he threw this and charged in. He was one of the first martyrs of Badr. So you have to imagine now, now you've got a few days, you're getting ready for this big war. 
your big battle and you're nervous. And it's not just the fact that you're worried about your life, that's normal. On top of that, the emotion of knowing I may never see my children. And just imagine if right now you've got family back at home and I say to you, by the way, guys, you're not going back. And you don't have that opportunity to settle your finances, settle your debts, settle your affairs with your family. It's going to play in your mind. It's a difficult situation. So for the Prophet Muhammad Sallam, ordering these people, this in itself started to become a real big test for them. What was interesting was that Allah SWT in the ayah of the Quran, He said, and recall when Allah showed them to you in your sleep as a few. And if he had showed them to you as many, you would have lost your courage and would have disputed about the matter. However, Allah granted salvation. So Surah Anfal, what's it talking about? They were already nervous, right? And they had a feeling that their army was going to be huge. But Allah gave them a dream that showed their numbers to be very small, to boost up their confidence. So Allah said, I know that if you knew what the numbers were, you would have lost courage. You're insane, you're human. And that would have caused fitnah between all of you. So Allah removed this, favoured you in this sense. He did the same with the Quraysh. He showed the Quraysh that they were few in numbers. And the reason why is because there were people in the Quraysh army who didn't necessarily want to be there. There were some of the leaders who were told they were going to die in that battle. So when they were showed in their own dream that gave them a bit of confidence that actually their numbers were nothing, and their numbers were nothing anyway, but their numbers were expected what they were thinking, 50, 30, they thought, easy day, right? So Allah SWT, what did he do? Look at Allah, the way he controls the universe. He wanted this war to happen. It had to happen. This is the biggest milestone in the history of Islam. It spells every message to build a Muslim's character up. And not just that, it was going to change the face of the Quraysh to the point that many of them were going to convert to Islam as a result. So this battle had to happen. So they had the dream, the confidence got built up. Some of them were still feeling fearful. We talked about the rain that came down and Allah settled their ground. Where the Muslims were settled, where it rained, the ground was firm. Where the Quraysh were, anxiety built up because it became very sloppy sand and their feet were getting stuck and thinking, if we fight in this, we're not going to be able to move our horses or our camels or mobilize what we need to. So things were getting a little bit difficult now. Muhammad Sallam starts preparing the army. Okay, so he has him in a line. He is ordered, and the Quranic ayah even talks about where Allah says that Allah likes when you put yourself into order to the point that you are like a structure. So this is an order from Allah. So Muhammad put the people with the arrows at the back, the soldiers with the spears and the foot soldiers at the front. This is how he rode them up. So he would prepare them and discipline them, right? They never used to do it this way, the fight. They used to just go haphazardly, get a stick. And he started putting the stick and he started pushing these Muslims back into line. And one Muslim turned around and he said, Oh, Ya Rasul, you hurt me. You hurt me. Let me retaliate. There is a ruling in Islam that if you harm someone, even unintentionally, they have the right to retaliate. Okay? It's a very famous story at the end, at the end of the life of the Prophet, when he was very sick, they gave him this medicine. They didn't know what was wrong. He had a very high fever. He was in consciousness, out of consciousness. So one of the family members, Alabaz's uncle, said, give him this medicine. And the medicine was like absolutely disgusting. And he didn't want to drink it. So they forced it down, Muhammad Sallam, and he literally nearly threw up. He became so angry that later on when he came to it, he goes, who fed me this? He goes, now all of you drink it. 
I'm going to retaliate. You made me drink it, now you all drink it and see if you like it. Yeah? Taste of your own medicine, right? The pun. So when Muhammad is pushing, this Sahabi goes, oh, Ya Rasul, you hurt me. I want to retaliate. And Muhammad knows this rule. He said, okay. So Muhammad lifted his top up and he said, poke me in the stomach. This man pounced on the Prophet and kissed his stomach. Ya Rasul said, what are you doing? He said, if I'm going to die, the last thing I want my skin to touch is yours. You are barakah. You see, the attitude of these Muslims and, 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 and the motivation they had. When the line was prepared, even the enemy side, when they saw the Prophet Muhammad some of the Quraysh, they started hallucinating and they started to see from the opposite side. The numbers looked that like they were smaller because later on what happened was in the war, when they started to fight, Allah made their numbers look bigger and then struck fear. He wanted to make sure they came, make them look smaller. But one of the Quraysh, when he saw them, he said, look at them. They're sitting on their horses, they're standing in lines and their heads are down and their eyes are up and they look like serpents with their tongues out, ready to kill us. So they started getting the fear a little bit, the jitters. They started hallucinating that that's the opposition. So now Muhammad returns back. Saad bin Muad made a camp for him further back. And what he said to Muhammad whatever reason, if Allah doesn't make this go in our direction. If we lose, you take the fastest horse we've got and you make your way back to Medina because the remaining of the Muslims are there because Islam must carry on. The Prophet Muhammad they say, this is the most powerful dua he ever used to make. And it's the only time when Muhammad used to invoke his rights from Allah. You know when we break dua, Ya Allah, give us this, give us that, whatever. Remember, Allah SWT says that if you do X, Y, and Z for me, I have an obligation to you. So for example, anyone who gives sadaqah, anyone who gives loan, Allah SWT is the best of paying loans. And he will increase your loan by millions. So some du'as, they say that you raise your hands low and your head is down. Okay? Out of humbleness. But when you want to invoke, and some du'as are permitted in this manner, you look up in the sky and you raise your hand up so your armpits are showing. And you invoke your right from Allah. And the du'a that the Prophet made to Allah, he said, Ya Allah, if today we lose your religion will not be spread. Give us the support and make us win. And he used to make so much to someone that he used to cry and cry. And Abu Bakr Siddiq said that he had a cloak, the cloak kept falling, I picked it up and I held it on. And I said to Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi I said, please, please, enough. You're going to emotionally wear yourself out. Allah has heard you. Why would he not listen to you? But you begin to understand this relationship between the Prophet Muhammad and Allah. That the Prophet also knew that at any given time, Allah could just ignore him, shut him off, throw him to hellfire, make him sin, anything. He understood even I don't have control over God. So I'm always on the back foot with Allah. That's why when they were traveling to Badr and they were sharing the um, camels, it was three to one camel. And Hazrat Ali was with him, another Sahabi with him, Jabir was with him. And the Prophet wanted to switch. But the other two said, no, 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 you're the Prophet, you stay. He said, am I weaker than you? And am I in any less need of reward than you? No, even I need it. Even I need it. So you begin to see that Allah SWT, with His mercy, He can let you in or He can finish you completely. Anyone. 
So he gets a dream and he wakes up and he's happy. He says to Abu Bakr Siddiq and to some of the Sahabi close to him, Allah has sent an army. Allah is sending an army. So Allah SWT had prepared and ordered Jibreel and Mikail to come down to join the army. Jibreel to go to the left flank and Mikhail to go on the right flank. And with them came 500 angels. Listen to this beautiful conversation within Jibreel and Muhammad Sallam afterwards. Jibreel says to Muhammad Sallam, the people that attended Badr, how would you describe them? He said that they were the best of the best of my ummah. Right? The best of the best. He says, what about yours? He said, the angels that were ordered down were the best of all the angels. Allah had ordered them and gave them the privilege to fight this fight with you. So when Muhammad is making this dua and he's invoking Allah's right on this, Allah SWT eases his pressure by sending this revelation to Jibreel saying that we're going to send down an army to support you. Now, we're going to flip around to the other side. What's happened now is the armies are lined up and one man by the name of Al-Aswad bin Abdul Asad he comes forward, very arrogant, horrible, horrible individual. This person, Allah decided, was never going to become Muslim because of the way that he was. The arrogance in him was unbelievable. Now remember that the Muslims have covered up the three wells. They're at the front now. So Hazrat Hamza is standing there. He has this ostrich feather that's in his belt, right? That's how you can recognize it. And people are petrified of him. Not Hazrat Umar. Umar they're scared of. But Hazrat Hamza is a different league altogether. Right? Completely different league. So this man comes out and he says to his people, I am going to drink from that well that's behind them. I want to see who's going to stop me. And if they try to stop me, I'm going to die trying getting there. You watch. Our right. So this is bravado now he's showing. So he starts to walk up. Everyone's in line. And the Prophet has given specific orders to the soldiers. Nobody move or shoots an arrow until the very last moment. So Hazrat Hamza standing here, the man starts to walk across. Hazrat Hamza standing here, looking at him, and he's walking up towards him slowly. Right? Like, come on then, let's see, go for it. He's looking at him, swinging his sword round. Hazrat Hamza is walking up closer to him, closer to him. By the time he gets quite close to the well, Hazrat Hamza takes his sword, swings it, and he cuts his leg just below his knee, and his leg goes flying off. And he drops. Now this man has made an oath to his people, I'm going to get to the well. So Hamza entertaining the situation, go on, go for it. And he's dragging his body along. So Hazrat Hamza, while he's dragging, he's behind him going for the well, Hamza is looking at everyone else. You want to come and destroy us, this is war. And then he turns around and he stabs and kills him. Immediately after that, the three Quraysh, so Utba, Shayba, and Al-Walid. So Utba bin Rabia, his brother is Al-Walid and his son is Shayba. They come out. You remember, just prior to this, Hakim bin Hazim says to Utba bin Rabia, why do we have to fight this war? Just pay. Just pay the blood money for the one that got killed. Settle with it and go. Because they're getting the jitters. When Abu Jahl heard this, he goes, you're a complete weakling. You're weak. You're pathetic. Why would you pay the blood money when you can take the blood of this man who killed him? And he became so angry, that's when he said, Utbah said to his brother and his son, out now, we're going to show Abu Jahl. 
And so they came out for a duel. Now, the reason why they do a duel is that when you get several people who are elected on both sides to fight, whoever loses or if they die, it jeers up the army. So if your guys get killed, you become angry and you come fighting out. When Utbah walks out, Shaybah walks out, Al-Walid, and they come into the middle. The army's behind them. In front of them is the Muslim army. Three of the Sahabis come forward, two brothers, the two sons of Afra, so Muad and Muawid. Muad and Muawid and Auf. Three of the Ansar step forward. So when Utbah sees them, he says, who are you? Because they've got their helmets on. He says, we are such and such, we are such and such, we are such and such from Medina. He says, we've got no beef with you. And they shout out to the Prophet and says, send our own. Send our own. We want to fight our own people. So Muhammad he goes, Hamza, out. Ali, out. And the last one, Ubaidah bin Al-Harith, out. Get ready, you're going to fight them. No problem. So they're all lined up. Ubaidah is now going to fight Utbah bin Rabia. And Hazrat Hamza is going to fight Shaybah. And Hazrat Ali is going to fight Al-Walid. The moment it starts, Hazrat Hamza and Al-Walid didn't even take them two seconds, they killed them. Two seconds, right? One miss, swipe, killed him. As far as Ubaidah bin Al-Hadi is concerned, he was having a back and forward and he got injured. His leg got injured quite badly. Some say he, his leg got cut and he was actually losing the fight. So Hazrat Hamza and Hazrat Ali jumped in and killed then Utbah bin Rabia. And they took Ubaidah back. So now this made the whole army super angry, really angry. So they all charged. They all charged towards the Muslims. Now, the Muslims start to fire their arrows and the Muslims start to move forward. And Muhammad is also in the midst of that fight. The Prophet Muhammad prior to this, sent an order to the Sahabi and said, when you're out there in the battlefield, the Banu Hashim, my family, have been forced into this battle. So do not kill them. Abu al-Bukhtari was the one that gave protection to the Prophet Muhammad when he came back from Taif. And he was the one that also worked against Abu Jahl to destroy the document that did the embargo against the, the family of Banu Hashim. So he had much respect for this individual. He said, if you find him, don't kill him either. Then he said, Al-Abbas, my uncle, was also forced to don't kill him. These are the Sahabi. Abu Hudayfa. Abu Hudayfa was a Sahabi. The Prophet entrusted him with the names of the hypocrites. We'll come across this. When Abu Hudayfa heard this, he went to Hazrat Umar. He said, so how is it right that we raise our swords against our friends, but we don't take the sword and swipe the neck of Al-Abbas? So he was angry at the Prophet's order. Happens, right? So when he told Umar, Hazrat Umar came to see the Prophet and he said, this is what Hudayfa said. He said, give me the order, I'll take the sword and I'll cut this hypocrite's head off. It's not a hypocrite. Hazrat Umar is always quite, you know, hot-headed and responds. But this is just the emotion that comes out. So the Prophet was a little bit upset by this, right? But Hudayfa then realized, I made a mistake. The point here is that everyone reacts badly, even with our parents. You know, they say something, we end up shouting at them, and then we feel bad. This is normal instinct. And Allah SWT will forgive everything as long as you sincerely repent, right? Even if it's with your Prophet. 
So the Prophet had these kind of reactions at times, right? There was another incident later on when he was distributing the wealth, the Ansar became upset. Why is he giving the wealth to all of his friends and families? And what about us? Has he forgotten us? So you see that people can get emotional. And Hudayfa said, since then, he says, since that point in time, I have never forgotten of the fact that I made this comment about the Prophet Muhammad And as a result of that, I will never ever redeem myself until I become a martyr for Islam. Because of what I said, and Allah did allow him to become a martyr at the Battle of Yamama. So even the Sahabi, they look at their reaction. So now you got, these people aren't allowed to kill. Now we go into the battle. When they're now fighting, okay, and I'm just going to park the angels for the side now. The, what happens is, they come across Abu al-Bakhtari. One of the Sahabi sees him and says, we've been ordered not to touch you. And he is with his friend. Abu al-Bakhtari has his best friend with him. So when he realizes they're not going to touch him, he realizes that, okay, Prophet told him, but what about my friend? He goes, no, no, you're okay, we're going to kill him. He's going to be dead. He said, no. If you're going to kill him, I'm going to stand. I'm not going to have our women folk back in Makkah turn around and say that you were such a weakling that you did not protect your best friend. No, I'm going to fight. So the Muslim, as they tried to kill his friend, Abu al-Bakhtari tried to fight and they ended up killing him. So the Sahabi came back with the bad news to tell Muhammad They tried. They weren't reprimanded. They had to do what they had to do. Okay? So now... They come across Umayyah bin Khalaf. Umayyah bin Khalaf was the one who did not want to go to this battle. He was the one who ran home to his wife and his wife said, why are you not going? He said, because my best friend Saad ibn Mu'ad told me that the Prophet Muhammad said that I'm going to die in this battle. But because Abu Jahl gave him and said, listen, you, you're chief, you can't stay here. People are going to look at you and if you back off, they're going to back off. So you have to come. So his intention was that he would leave Makkah, go to a certain point. People move on. thousand people going. They won't know if one disappears. His plan was to come back to Makkah. But Allah didn't allow it. He ended up in the battle. So Umayyah bin Khalaf is with his son Ali. Now he's a big fat guy and he can't move around very well. So he's, he's like a lost sheep in this war. right? He even has a helmet that doesn't even fit him. Okay, so the story is that Abdurrahman bin Ibn Auf was one of his very close friends in Makkah. So in Makkah, so Saad ibn Muad was his best friend in Medina and in Makkah he had Abdurrahman ibn Auf. So one day, in the early days, Abdurrahman, his name was Abu Amr. When he became Muslim, he changed his name to Abdurrahman ibn Auf. So he said to his friend, Umayyah bin Khalaf, from now on, I'm Muslim, you're my mate, you call me Abdurrahman, right? I don't want you to call me by own name Abdul Amr anymore. He says, look, I know you by Abdul Amr, yeah, and I don't know what Ar-Rahman means, because Ar-Rahman was a name that was given to Allah, so they didn't recognize this, right? He says, I don't understand this term, and I'm not really happy with it. So let's come up with an uh, intermediate name for you, right? Let's come up with it. So they called him, he said, how about Abdullah? He said, okay, agreed. If you want to call me Abdullah, you call me that. So in Makkah, for that period of time, called him Abdullah, Abdullah, whatever. The battle happens now, and Abdul Rahman ibn Auf is collecting all the booty, so the chain mills, the weapons, he's picking it up. At this point now, Umayyad bin Khalaf realizes that the Quraysh are losing. 
So he's got his son's hand. His son's name is Ali as well. And he sees, he sees Abdul Rahman ibn Auf. And he calls him by his name, Abdul Amr, Abdul Amr. And he ignores him. And then he calls him by the name, Abdullah. And he looks at him. He says, isn't it better that I am worth more than a thousand camels? So take me. Meaning that I'll take me to prison water, they don't have to kill me. So he said, good idea. And plus you're my friend, so I'll kill two birds with one son. I'll protect you and I'll trade you. So he comes along, he drops all the chain, and he knows this man's worth more. So he's holding Umay bin Khalaf's hand, or his wrist, and Ali's wrist, like they're prisoners. And he starts walking like they're prisoners of war, to be collected. Who goes by Hazrat Bilal? Hazrat Bilal was the slave of Umayyah bin Khalaf. And Umayyah bin Khalaf used to torture him. You know the story? Stick him on the rock in the burning heat. And he used to say, Ahad, Ahad, Ahad. And he used to say, revoke your religion, revoke it. He goes, no, Ahad, Ahad. And he used to torture him continuously. When Hazrat Bilal saw him, he said, I'm going to kill this man. And Abdul Rahman ibn Al said, no, 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 you can't kill him. He's my prisoner. And he started shouting out to all the Sahabi. He goes, this man used to torture me. Torture me. The other slaves, they died, the Muslims. He used to torture me. Allah made me live. I am not going to let this man live. So they're all surrounded. Right? All the Sahabi came. and they Because they sympathetic to Hazrat Bilal. So they surrounded. And here's Abdurrahman ibn Auf holding their hands. And they're getting their knives, the Sahabi. And they're trying to get through to poke him, to stab him. He said, no, no, you can't do this. Yeah, He's my prisoner. And Hazrat Bilal was not having it. This man will die in this battle. So... In that process of trying to stab him, they ended up injuring Abdul Rahman bin Auf. So he dropped, they hurt his leg by accident. And the other two ran and they chased him and they killed both of them. So the prophecy of the Prophet came true that they were killed in the battle. The last one of the deaths, and there wasn't many deaths, but these are the most prominent ones, was the death of Abu Jahl. Okay, the death of Abu Jahl the greatest antagonist in all of this, the ones who jived up all the enemies of Islam to harm the Prophet Muhammad Abu Jahl, there was an interesting story. So we talked about these two brothers, uh, Muad and Muawid. So same man, Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, the Sahabi, when they were in the line, he was getting ready for battle and he was thinking to himself, I'm a veteran fighter. Okay, and he's looking around thinking, how many veterans we got here? Because we didn't bring all the best fighters. We just bought the guys once for the caravan. And he had these two young kids. They were in their teens. They were in their teens. So one of them nudged Abdul Rahman ibn Auf and he said to him, hey, uncle, which one's Abu Jahl? He goes, what do you want Abu Jahl for? He goes, he's the one I want to kill. He goes, we heard what he did to the Prophet. I'm going to slaughter him. He just looked at him and thought, you're just a little punk kid. What are you going to do to him? He's a veteran fighter. Then next minute, the next brother starts picking him, right? Poking him. He goes, what do you want? He goes, winks at him. He goes, tell me which one's Abu Jahli. You have a deal with my brother. Who's going to kill him first? He said, okay. Kind of got his confidence. I was thinking, these boys aren't scared of anything. When the battle started and they started running out, they saw Abu Jahl. So Abdul Rahman ibn Auf said to both of these boys, there he is. You can go for him. He said they pounced like eagles. They shot after him. So one of them, one of the brothers, went and he charged, he jumped up with the sword to attack him. 
And he did. He managed to hit Abu Jahl in the leg and severed his leg off. Right? One of his legs. Whilst he was fighting, the son of Abu Jahl, he saw this Mu'ad and he took his sword and he struck him on the shoulder and his arm came off, dangling off. Right? The other one threw a few stabs in, but the battle carried on. Mu'ad said, he goes, I used to fight. I carried on fighting because I got taken away from Abu Jahl. I did the main blow. I got taken away from the fight. My arm kept on swinging in my face and it got in my way. He goes, I had no choice but to put my foot on my hand and walk away from it to take it off so I can carry on fighting. As they carried on fighting, Abdullah ibn Masood shows up. If you remember Abdullah ibn Masood, he was a goat herder, right? Cattle herder. That's how he became Muslim. In the early stage of Makkah, the Prophet and Abu Bakr Siddiq met him and started giving him dawah, and then he became Muslim, right? Because he used to look after the cattle of the rich. So he walks over and he sees Abu Jahl laying there, unable to move now. He's literally disabled. He's dying. He's coughing up. And he looks at him and he says to Abu Jahl, so what does it feel like now being at the bottom? He says, so a goat herder now feels like he's on top of the world because he's going to take my life. He said, this is the only time in your life that you're ever going to get this privilege. So Abdul ibn Masood cut his head off, responded, took the head and took it to the Prophet Muhammad threw it in front of his face and says, this is Abu Jahl. So Abu Jahl was now finished. He's now died. In the meantime, now let's talk about the angels. Two of the bystanders, <clears throat> so people heard that there was a war going to kick off, right? The fight's going to kick off. So two of the polytheists, not part of the Quraysh, they're just locals there. They go up to the highest mountain and they're looking over to see the battle so they can see them down on the desert. He said, we looked up, we could hear a cracking sound. When we looked up, we saw the clouds become very dark, you know, like a tornado coming, very dark on one side. We could see horses and men coming down with whips. He said, before I knew it, my friend suffered from a cardiac arrest. He had a shock and he died and I fainted. So in this battle, the Muslims did not see the angels. But the Quraysh were allowed to see it. So all the narrations we have in regards to the angels and their, how they look like came from the Quraysh who were kuffar at that time. And then they narrated it afterwards, said that we didn't know. Because what the Muslims were saying was when we were fighting, one Sahabi said, I was chasing one Quraysh and he was running from me. Now the ayah of the Quran, Allah says, strike them from the neck and cut off from their fingertips. Cut from their fingertips so you'll recognize that these are the angels that did this and take their head off. Now Allah didn't want to do a complete massacre. It was a certain number and it was specifically those who antagonized the Prophet ﷺ, who did really bad evil against the Prophet Muhammad so the Sahabi said, when I was chasing him, right above me, I could hear a crack of a whip. As the dust went up and it settled, I was running. He goes, I saw the man in front of me and he was in a kneeling position like he was in sujood. And I walked over to him with my sword about to attack him and I realized his head is gone. And many of them were slaughtered and a few of them were obviously, they were captured. So even afterwards, what used to happen was the Prophet gave an order to the Sahabi and said, well, in this battle, whatever you capture, the prisoners of war 
and any of the booty is yours, okay? So whenever capturing people, if you capture a chief, you're gonna make a lot of money because you're gonna trade him. If you've got a normal guy, you're not gonna make a lot. So when they caught one of these Quraysh and they brought him back and they chained, they tied him up, they said to Prophet I caught this one. He said, you didn't catch nothing. He said, the man that came to get me was a very good looking, tall, strong built on a white horse with white clothes. He was the one who caught me. You came afterwards when he tied me up. Right? So they're like, what's he on about? And then the Prophet said to the Sahabi, he's talking about the angels that came down. So the angels, they came to assist the Prophet That's why Allah then went on to say, in regards to the Quraysh, that there was a sign for you in two sides battling together, one fighting for Allah and the other unbelieving and seeing them by their own sight as twice their own numbers. Right? So Allah gazed those with his victory and he wishes. So those, when the Quraysh went out to fight, they dreamt there was going to be smaller numbers. They looked like there were smaller numbers. When the fight began, it like tripled and quadrupled to now strike the fear into them. So now the major people were killed and many of them escaped. So understand one element of this battle. 70 were killed from their side, 14 from the Muslim side and 70 captured. So a thousand of the Quraysh 70 killed, 70 captured. That's not a big casualty number, right? And the reason why, because Allah subhanahu wa wanted these be to become Muslim. And they did all become Muslim afterwards. This was Allah giving these people a massive big blow of what was to happen. A massive big blow. So now that the battle is over and they've all gone and they've run, all these people are now being captured and they're coming back. Now, one of the amazing things is that what happens during this time is the Prophet doesn't leave the battleground for a three-day period. One, to collect all the bodies. The Shaheeds are buried and the Shaheeds are not washed. No salai is done over them and they are buried in their position. You cannot move them. But one interesting thing was that the Prophet Muhammad started speaking up very loudly and said, Abu Jahl, Umayyah bin Khalaf, and named all of these Quraysh, yeah, these the Kufar. And he said, now do you see what the Haq is? Now do you see the truth? Because now they've gone over, they've gone in the Barzakh. Now they've gone to Allah. Now they know it wasn't a lie. So the Sahabi said to the Prophet who are you talking to? He says, I'm talking to the dead. He goes, can the dead hear? He goes, no, Allah has given them permission to hear me before he takes them. So inshallah we'll carry that on next week. Jazakallah khair.